0: Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen and I'm a GP Registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic.
1: Welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. Today I'm talking to Carrie Loonan, GP and Chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners in Scotland. Carrie has always had an interest in addressing health inequalities, and specifically the GP's role in this, in consultation with patients and as an advocate for her patients. She is currently working in Craig Miller, in one of the most deprived parts of Edinburgh in Scotland. Carrie prioritises a number of things, including addressing stigma, improving the interaction between primary and secondary care, and also improving
0: practitioner wellbeing.
1: Carrie sings and plays the guitar in a band. I also know she likes running and if you want to go running with her it has to be early as I hear she does it at 5am in the morning. Hi Carrie, I'm thrilled to be in the beautiful city of Edinburgh on this surprisingly spring-like February day to chat to you. I got to know Carrie through my sister who is also a GP in Edinburgh and happens to work at the Access Practice which is the homeless practice in central Edinburgh where Carrie used to work. Thank you for joining us and welcome everyone to this episode of Finding Fair Health. Thank you, great to see you too. Carrie, Chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners in Scotland, what's so special about general practice?
2: I think when I was a medical student, I never really knew exactly what I wanted to do, and I liked everything, but I also liked art as well as science, so I always felt like a bit of an imposter at medical school. I was never entirely sure that being a doctor was what I wanted to do, but when I qualified and I started to do different roles, um, I realised that variety was one of the one of the main things that I loved um, and so general practice fitted well with that because it combined human experience and stories which are really important to me um, with the ability to innovate and be creative and use both sides of the brain. So I think for me general practice is all about um, working and getting to know um, communities and offering long-term health care to patients and their families um, and offering healthcare that's delivered within that context but also just building up relationships of trust over serial um, appointments with people over a long period of time so I think that the relationship building that comes with general practice for me is is crucial to what makes it so so enjoyable and so special
1: yeah 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 I agree with that and do you, would you say that those things are the things that make you get out of bed in the morning and into work
2: I think they, they probably are, but I think that um, more specifically working in an area of high deprivation is what really drives me now. Um, when I first qualified as a as a GP, um, I worked um, in as part of a GP fellowship when I did a, a master's in medical law and ethics, um, and I worked for a while in Craig Miller Medical Practice, where I'm now a partner. Um, and I was very interested in that time at... In, in refugee health um, and also in the sort of role of of um it was actually advanced directives that I was looking at then it was the role of of being able to make decisions about your your own health um, and end of life care in advance of, of losing capacity which was a really interesting area for me. I became very interested in the ability of people to be able to share decisions, which is something that feels very current now in Scotland with realistic medicine. Um, and then I became a partner in another practice and then was there for around five years and then moved to the homeless practice where I worked as a salary GP for five years and then ultimately back to Craigmillan as a partner. So I have moved quite a lot, but I'm definitely drawn to working in areas of, of high deprivation because for me, it feels like that's what the NHS was set up to do. It was mm-hmm. set up to you know, address the needs of, of people who have the least um, and relatively small interventions can have huge impacts on people's lives um, and it feels for me like that's where my my heart lies that's where I find my tribe (laughs) that's where um, I enjoy working with colleagues particularly colleagues who've got the same goals and passions as I do so in in terms of just it being a, a sustaining way to work as well I find that when I go to work At Miller, it doesn't matter how difficult things are feeling in my own life, how tired I am, how stressed I am and other things that are going on, I am constantly reminded that I am lucky to have the life that I do and the choices that I do when I hear of the stories that people share with me um, and their lack of choice um, and their lack of opportunity in life. So it's a very um, grounding way to work um, and that definitely helps me when things feel tough as well.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And... I, I find that really inspiring do you think do you think all GPS feel like that do you think they all GPS go into work and feel like that? I
2: think it's a difficult time to be a GP yeah. at the moment I think there's no there's no getting away from that um you know just the, the rising demand and the diminishing workforce and um is is difficult The days are long and it can feel like there's no there's no respite sometimes and I know mm. that a lot of the GPS that that I know personally and also just hearing from GPS across Scotland are finding it pretty difficult and need Mm. to know that there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. Um, And there are some changes afoot with the new contract. We need to see how that is going to play out. Um, But certainly sharing the work out to a wider team so that we can, as GPs, see the people who need to see us the most and hopefully have longer with us. Um, Because the other thing that I constantly strive for is longer than 10 minutes to actually hear what people are worried about um, and hear their story. So I think that I think that GPs at the moment um, do sometimes struggle to to get out of bed to go to work in the morning because it feels tough. Um, for me, having a job that feels like you can make a, a really big difference to people um, by working as part of a team, by advocating on behalf of people who have no voice, it definitely gives me energy, um, and so. And that's why I choose to work in the areas that I choose to work in. But I think that the motivations for for many GPs will be different across the country. But I think most GPs that you speak to are motivated by the aspects of the job that that we chose it for, which are continuity, which are trust, um, which are the ability to be quite an autonomous professional Mm -hmm. working out in the community um, and advocating on behalf of patients, regardless of what kind of population you're caring for.
1: Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. No, I see that. And you mentioned a bit um about realistic medicine. I don't I don't know much about this, so can you tell us a little bit more?
2: So realistic medicine is is a movement really, mm-hmm. um, I would say. Um, and it's been generally um very welcomed by the professions across mm-hmm. the country. It's um the the subject of the chief medical officer's report, I think it was two thousand and fifteen that it was released. Mm-hmm. And it kind of for me describes um the kind of medicine that I've always wanted to be able to practice. So it's medicine that that promotes shared decision-making, that demedicalises normal life experiences, um, that looks at reducing variation and and waste and improving quality within systems. But a lot of it for me is about having good conversations with people, essentially. Um, Good conversations require time and good conversations require trust. Um, and often I think um, the prime uh, situation or context for realistic medicine discussions is out in the community Uh, because often by the time people are in an outpatient clinic or they're admitted to hospital it's much less um, easy to deliver realistic medicine because someone is already within the system within the acute system so realistic medicine I think has been universally um, kind of accepted with with open arms by the profession but there are lots of challenges along the way about what that actually means in practice and the biggest challenge I think for GPs is having the the time to have these conversations but everybody would like to be able to deliver this kind of medicine. There are similar movements across the UK so um, there's the Choosing Wisely campaign in Wales I think and Prudent Healthcare and also In England, um, there is a rethinking medicine movement as well. Now, they're all quite similar. They've got slightly different aspects within each one. Um, But I think it's really heartening to see that there's this movement towards challenging some of the medicalisation of life that we've maybe seen over the last 20 years and perhaps the commercialisation of healthcare, and moving much more towards, you know, how can we empower people to... To self-care and um, and keep the medicine out of it when it's not when it's not appropriate and when it might harm rather than heal.
1: A lot of people think, right? Let's empower patients to be able to help themselves. What do you think about that?
2: I think it's a great aspiration, but I think in reality it's much more challenging than that, particularly in areas of high deprivation. So it's far easier for me as a patient going to see my GP. Um, being given advice in a written format and and told to look up some resources online to be able to understand that and go home and do that um, and maybe follow the advice and take the medication as as, um, recommended but for a lot of my patients in Craig Miller that's not necessarily possible for them so there are major issues with literacy functional literacy in terms of being able to read and write and also health literacy in terms of how much people understand about their own health and also, they don't always have the social networks to draw on that I maybe do. So, I might be able to say to my friend or my uh, family member, "Can you um, look after this for me while I go to an appointment and um, and seek help about X, Y, and Z?" Or, um, and or be able to understand the information that I'm given in written format. So, I think that that self care is a really great aspiration, but we need to be realistic about how we empower people to do that and i think a lot of thought needs to be given to make sure that we don't worsen health inequalities by by empowering those who are already empowered and disempowering those who are already disempowered um, so there are some discussions planned i know with the chief medical officer team and um, with myself and with my executive officer in rcgp scotland graham kramer who's done a lot of work on realistic medicine following up on some of the discussions that have been had with the citizens' jury, which is a new concept, bringing together members of the public to consult them on what they think shared decision-making should look like and does look like. So um, we're going to be meeting to talk about what that might look like in practice.
1: Mm, fantastic. Some be. So I suppose that's um, patients almost being advocates for themselves. Um, we, obviously, as GPs, we're in a really good place to advocate for our patients. How much do you think a GP's role is advocating for our patients?
2: I believe quite strongly that it's a pretty fundamental part of our role, Um, but I also recognise that um, as workloads become more difficult to manage and people as practitioners become more stressed, that the advocacy role can get left by the side of the road, not in a deliberate way, but because it's not felt to be possible or sustainable within a working day. Now I think that you as a as a professional can get a lot of energy um, and a lot of passion back into your work if you if you kind of embrace the advocacy role as part of what you do. And I, I have a very clear memory of about a year ago I relatively recently joined the Craig Miller practice and I had been working crazy 12, 13 hour days, and I hadn't really got to know the services that I was referring people to out in the community, the third sector, highly valuable third sector Mm -hmm. colleagues that we work with. So I took a day of study leave, and I went and walked about, and I basically went into lots of places and introduced myself and apologised that I hadn't been in beforehand and met them. Um, And what really opened my eyes was that a chance conversation that I had with Um, with a leader of a third sector organisation that we highly relied on told me that their funding was perilous and that they were probably going to close. And I hadn't known anything about it because it was an unknown unknown. And unless you go out and you find out what's going on in communities or you make time to do it or you happen to hear about it from patients, you don't often know. So I felt quite exercised by this and thought we need to do something because I think what we forget sometimes when we're feeling... You know, tired or stressed ourselves is that our voices are very powerful, even though we don't feel powerful sometimes. Our voices are so much more powerful than the patients that we are looking after, particularly in deprived areas, and also the colleagues that we work with who maybe don't have the voice that we do. So, harnessing um, a much more collective voice on things and raising concerns about colleagues losing funding or lobbying on behalf of patients to local MSPs to say, this can't go, this would be very damaging to our local community, actually is really strengthening for relationships with your patients and your community. It's strengthening for relationships with colleagues and it gives you a sense of of purpose um, and also kind of reinvigorates your sense that advocacy is a really crucial part of the job that we play. And I would love to see a situation whereby every practice has an advocacy lead and it's their role to know what is going on in the community so that they can raise concerns if they need to when things start to go wrong.
1: So I'd be really interested to hear a little bit about Craig Miller um, and where you're working at the moment. So um, Craig Miller, I think, is a deep end practice. Yeah. For those listening that don't know what a deep end practice, can you tell us a little bit about what that is?
2: So the GPs at the Deep End group was established I think nine or ten years ago, um, and it describes the practices in Scotland that are serving the hundred most deprived areas in Scotland. So there are I think more than a hundred members now. Um, but the GPs at the deep end are a, a group of practitioners that have come together. Um, to learn from each other and to provide support to each other um, for working in areas of high deprivation and Craig Miller is one of those practices.
1: Yeah, okay. And mm. there's So there's lots of deep end projects. I know it started in Scotland but there's lots of deep end projects now across the UK. Um, why, why is this project so important?
2: I think that one of the main things that it has allowed is a sense of identity for practitioners who were previously possibly feeling quite professionally isolated or um, you know worn down by the very kind of high emotional toil that, that can happen in areas of high deprivation and, and providing a space that was protected because it was resourced by the Scottish government and by RCGP Scotland and by Glasgow University. So providing a space for people to come together to share their experiences and to learn from each other and to start academic work write reports, write manifestos and create a pretty strong lobbying voice and a model that has been replicated across the UK and across the world um, has shown how important it is to, to be able to allow people to come together to do that because previously it just couldn't have happened. GPs couldn't have taken time out of their practices to go to a meeting that didn't allow backfill to the practice. It was just too difficult to do. The practices were too busy. And so, um, there was a lot of silo working and a lot of learning that was being, not that wasn't being captured, that was being lost.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sharing information sharing and just information, yeah
2: creating identity. And I think that for me, being able to say I'm a deep NGP fills me with a massive sense of pride. But I'm also aware that we don't want to be exclusive about it because I think that's a really important message if you don't happen to be in the top 100 practices of deprivation, that doesn't mean that you don't have a really difficult job looking after patients who have deep-end needs. Mm. So there are deep-end patients across the whole of Scotland and there are areas of deprivation pretty much in every practice area and and also in remote rural areas. So I think, for me, one of the the really um, exciting things to come out of deep-end nine and ten years later is what is the learning that we have distilled down here that is equally applicable to every practice in Scotland, and how can we scale this up to get maximum benefit for everybody that's dealing with health inequality?
1: Yeah, and I suppose that applies not just for GPs either. Is um health professionals Absolutely. um working yeah. across yeah health professionals generally working in these deprived areas? Um yeah, fantastic. So the deep end is um a fantastic project, and for. professionals starting on their career knowing it exists is quite reassuring in the sense that there's people coming together to try and help each other out so i feel reassured by that i'm really um interested you mentioned your um some work around ethics specifically around capacity and end-of-life care a bit earlier on can you tell me a little bit more about that i
2: was lucky to do a two-year fellowship when i finished my GP training um and as part of that, we were encouraged to do a postgraduate um, period of study. And I've always been interested in law and ethics and medicine, um, even mm-hmm. though we didn't really feature as part of my undergraduate curriculum at that point. But we did it a bit in GP training. Um, and so I I did an MPhil in law and ethics through at Glasgow University. Um, I was particularly interested in... Um, in advanced decision making and involving people more in decisions about their care because I think it's still an area that we don't do as well as we could um, across many areas of medicine but particularly end of life care and there are lots of reasons for that it's a difficult area for people to discuss as some of it's cultural etc but when I qualified with my degree it, it allowed me lots of opportunities within Edinburgh as a working GP to get involved in ethics education Um, which I absolutely love. Um, So ethics education around communication, around assessing capacity, around end-of-life care, um, around clinical negligence, um, around stigma and marginalisation, and how do you incorporate those into the curriculum. So it was a fantastic thing to have had the chance to do because of all the opportunities that came afterwards and I'm sure has influenced the career path that I've taken.
1: Mm-hmm. I bet you're using the knowledge and thinking that you did on in those two years yeah, every day. I do. I mean, there's, yeah.
2: there's hardly a, a consultation that goes by that if you don't scrape the surface hasn't got some ethical aspect to it. If you really look for it, it's yeah. there. And um, and I sit on the RCGP UK Ethics Committee, and I have done it for the last six years, which has been a really enjoyable thing to do. And one of the discussions that we have on a regular basis is. You know where are the opportunities for practicing clinicians to talk about the ethics of the ordinary? So, not the really kind of high highfalutin, uh, very complex, and kind of high drama ethical cases that you hear about that reach the courts, but the day to day stuff that's difficult because it has an ethical component. Where is the opportunity to discuss that? Um, and I think for many GPs, there isn't that opportunity, it's not routinely discussed as part of appraisal. It doesn't routinely get discussed in kind of small group learning. Um, it's quite a difficult thing sometimes to formulate thoughts around, but it's it's always a very well-received um, area of education when you put it on the agenda for, say, the RCGP annual conference as a fringe session. You always get lots of people coming, pitching up and wanting to talk about the ethics of the ordinary. So I'm really interested in how we think um, and we and we use an ethical framework to... To try and understand our decision making and also understand why things can feel difficult because they are difficult mm. Um so i think that that is a, a sort of tool for resilience if you like is, mm. is is being able to think things through using using ethical frameworks and being able to bounce ideas off colleagues
1: yeah so and i imagine a lot of a lot of health professionals are just sitting on these ethical dilemmas and taking them home with them aren't they rather than being able to speak to other people about them because that's just the real realistic part of everyday life as a GP yeah yeah yeah. and how interesting you mentioned a little bit about um stigma as Mm -hmm. part of that and particularly in deprived areas I think that's a big thing that can affect patients um particularly when patients are struggling when you get labeled with particular diagnoses you get labeled as being homeless for example obviously that's something that you're quite interested in. Tell me a little bit about what you've done with the RCTP with regards to that, um, your previous experiences.
2: Um, My previous experiences largely around stigma have been um, sort of undergraduate medical Mm. education um, and encouraging students to think more widely, I guess, about what stigma means and how that might play out in their understanding of how people might present or what cultural you know, beliefs in terms of how that might influence um, symptoms or diagnoses or requests for health care. Um, but also, I'm very interested in, and uh, be- became particularly interested in this while working at the homeless practice, is the, the kind of idea that 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 patients are non-engagers with services or are non-compliant with treatment. Because uh, what we're describing there, are often patients who... Um, we are expecting to be able to use a system that we have designed for them, uh, which may involve a referral to an outpatient clinic and then a, an appointment being sent to an address, and then people being able to turn up and make use of that appointment and understand what's being said. Um, and often the most kind of marginalised groups with you know frequent address moves or difficult um, kind of or challenging levels of literacy. Um, or very bad experiences of, of care, whatever care means, between two human beings, struggle with that. They really struggle with that whole system and so they may not feel able to turn up to the appointment and then they're discharged from the service and they're labelled as a, as a non-engager. And I became very, very interested in that working at the homeless practice because a lot of the people that we would see there would be classified as people who can't make use of systems. They can't navigate complex systems. They can't navigate healthcare, social care, the criminal justice system, and so they end up circulating round and round systems and never being able to get out of the bit. Um, and it sometimes feels like our systems are not imaginative enough to be able to address the needs of people who really struggle to use them uh, because they're designed by people who don't have any difficulties in accessing healthcare or in receiving appointments through the post and turning up to be seen by another healthcare professional
1: yeah it's Um, almost as if someone said right this is how I would design a service for someone who would be able to access this perfectly isn't it yeah Um, and I sometimes think that actually as soon as there's a a little um, barrier to get over in the system it suddenly puts up brick wall that you just can't get over
2: yeah yeah I think that in terms of work with College of GPs I'm not aware of any specific work that we've done on stigma but Mm. it is a it's a sort of underpinning theme for a lot of the um for a lot of the feedback that I give into consultations that we're asked to respond to because that's a big part of the job is being asked to feedback on you know on Scottish government documents Mm. or other policy documents um and health inequalities and stigma and considering marginalized groups is something that I'm always keen to make sure that we do almost as a kind of sense check when we're when we're giving feedback as as an RCGP.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting. That kind of leaves leads me on to my next question really, the the role of RCGP Scotland in reducing health inequality. So you talk about it from a sort of feedback point of view. What other role does it have?
2: I think it has a role in in being able to um, address issues such as um, social isolation and loneliness. We've done quite a lot of work around that and that's very much kind of galvanized um, the profession and brought us together on an area that I think we all feel strongly about that we would like to see addressed more at a national level. Um, I think that as a as a college, as a medical college, along with all other medical colleges, um, health inequalities is really a kind of moral duty for us to be able to address. So we have to use every lever that we can to raise it at every level that we can. And you know, our obvious ways of doing that would be through training, because that's a big part of what the RCGP does, is it sets the curriculum and it sets the exam. So we need to make sure that for the the doctors that are coming through our system, that, that deprivation, poverty medicine, whatever you want to call it, is very much part of the curriculum and that everybody gets a good understanding of what that means, because it will then allow people to make more informed choices about the kind of jobs that they then choose to go into and gives a much more rounded appreciation of what um, what a huge swathes of our society are actually experiencing. I think that we can be influential in the undergraduate curriculum through the stakeholders that we work with, but that's not mm. our, our most immediate role. But I think as well, having a voice um, around negotiating tables when it comes to whether it's the new contract or whether it's direction of travel more generally for healthcare, social care integration, being able to always be asking yourself what's the role of reducing health inequalities for this? I almost think it should be a sense check question for every single policy that, that goes through um, for us as well. Um, and so that's that's where I see the role of the college in that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fantastic to hear because it's obviously a personal mission, and by the sounds of it, um, you're managing to make that the role of the college as well. Because I had wondered whether it was more of a a carry thing, and then the college stuff was on the side. But it sounds like you're managing to entwine the two. Would you yeah. say? No, I
2: would yeah. say I would say that the two roles are pretty closely linked. Yeah, and, um, and also there is a there is a national RCGP health inequalities yeah. Um and We have also signed up to support the standards that were produced by the Faculty of Homeless and Inclusion Health, which you've probably heard of, the Pathways Project down south. Um, All the Royal colleges signed up to that to to support their standards and some of that was around including it in training. So in some ways that's quite useful for me. It gives us a mandate to be doing much more around that and I'm going to be meeting with with a colleague from the Faculty of of Homeless and Inclusion Health in the near future to talk about what e-learning modules might look like around health inequalities because I think being able to develop resources that are accessible and easy to use are really important. Um, The other area for for resources that is really useful for people to look at if they were keen is on the DPEM website because Mm -hmm. there are a huge amount of resources there that describe the projects, that have reports, that have manifestos.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you. I think about it a lot as a as a trainee I hear trainees being a bit bored by the idea of a health inequalities teaching day being a bit you're either interested in this sort of thing or you're not um and I'm interested in that point where GPs get in their training so I think everyone goes into medical school thinking right I want to go into medical school because I want to help people and at some point along that trainee journey there comes a point where GPs make a choice. All right, I'm going to work in a deep end practice. I'm going to work in a practice which has got deprived pockets, or I'm just not. I'm just not interested in this sort of thing. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that happens at some point during the training journey?
2: It's a really interesting question, and I don't know the answer to that um, because for some people, it may be um, a, a value that they have always held from early on in life and it may be to do with personal experience it may be to do with upbringing it may be to do with you know parenting it may be to do with the people that they knew at school it's difficult to know i think it would be a really interesting study actually to look at why people choose what they do Um, i think that there's no doubt that exposure to people who are passionate about a particular type of medicine early on in your training in your career is influential. We know that from, there's lots of studies that show that, the VALBAT study, the destination GP report that looked at what influenced medical student choice that was published last year, showed, and none of this is surprising, that early exposure um, to general practice, positive role modelling in general practice, and absence of sort of negative speak about general practice were the three most important things that influence career choice. So, so I think that for students that um, sometimes may hear somebody speaking passionately about a type of medicine that they'd never really considered before, um, may just create a light bulb moment at that point, or it may not, maybe later on in their career. And for some people, it's it's never going to be the type of medicine that they enjoy or they feel comfortable with because there's no doubt that it can have its frustrations. If you're, you know, if you're very motivated by and being able to follow guidelines to the nth degree and being able to always complete treatment plans and be able to work with patients who will always be able to follow your advice and come back and it's all quite tidy, then deprivation medicine is really difficult and it will be really difficult. So I think part of it is about recognising what degree of muddiness am I okay with? <laughs> Do you know, in, in yeah, reality. Yeah, no, completely. Um, and also... Um, you know, so I, th- I think that you know some honesty around what working in deprivation can feel like as well is is important because it's important that people choose careers that they that they can be well within that they can feel sustainable within. But I think that um, that exposure to to those ideas quite early on in the curriculum and, and allowing them to be in the curriculum is really important so that people know about it.
1: No, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, you talk about a light bulb moment. Do you think you had a light bulb moment?
2: I'm not sure if I had a light bulb moment, um, but I definitely was interested as a medical student in, I've always been interested in human behaviour. I think I probably should have been an anthropologist, that would have been my thing. Um, but I did a um, a welcome scholarship during a summer holiday, um, and, and I chose to do it with a kind of epidemiological background, and I was based with the Aberdeen Drugs Action um, organisation, which basically involved eight weeks of me sitting in a drop-in, with some of Aberdeen's poorest citizens, mostly young, who were using drugs. It was in the 90s, so HIV was a big issue then. Um, and it also involved doing outreach work down to the docks, and it involved doing lots of health promotion work, and it involved me doing qualitative interviews with people around their knowledge of HIV and how they kept themselves safe when they were injecting drug users. And it was that was a bit of a light bulb moment, because I'd never really kind of experienced... The rawness of of working with patients um, in that way as a student, so it was it was quite formative because I was you know um, in between kind of third and fourth year medical school, um, and it definitely made me think this is the kind of medicine that I really enjoy because a lot of it is about patient stories and a lot of it is about advocacy um, and a lot of it is about kind of social justice and all those things really tick boxes for me so I think I held that while I then went through um, my GP training and ultimately ended up in the job that I do now Mm
1: -hmm. and if you could talk to that young Carrie now would you would you tell her anything in particular would you say um any life lessons or any advice I think
2: it's again it's a good question I think I would probably um say to students to young carries now um Take these opportunities that feel frightening or out of your comfort zone. There's a reason that they feel out of your comfort zone. So if you get the opportunity to go and work with a group of people that you've never worked with before and you think that you might find it challenging or anxiety-provoking or frightening, that's precisely the reason that you should do it. Um, Make sure you're safe, obviously. But I think that if we always stay within the areas that we feel are comfortable, then we don't grow. Um, and a lot of the opportunities that I've had over the last, I'd say, 10 years have happened, um, partly because I've I've made decisions um, that I've had to make professionally and other doors have opened. And I thought, I'm just going to say yes to that and see what happens. I'm just going to say yes to that and see what happens. And the more that you get involved in the areas of work that genuinely give you joy and you think, this is what I want to do, the more opportunities will present themselves. Um, And sometimes it can feel like you um, bite off more than you can chew, um, but you end up then being surrounded more and more by people who think the same way that you do. And I think that that feels really powerful and really sustaining to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, All the stuff you've said about finding your tribe, finding that work that brings you joy... It must be really, really hard to balance all of this. So I know you've got a number of roles. How do you manage this, Carrie?
2: Um, I don't always manage it. If I'm honest, um, sometimes I just have to uh, block my diary out and say no meetings. I need to read some emails and catch up with life. But I, um, I have a very supportive practice team, and I've I've cut my my time at the practice down while I'm doing this role with RCGP Scotland. So I work. In the practice um, for four sessions a week and then I work largely the rest of the week with RCGP um, and I I have to kind of put in quite a lot of balancing mechanisms to make that workable I have a very supportive husband who's also a GP um, yeah. who keeps me sane and cooks me tea which I'm very grateful for because otherwise I'd probably be having beans and toast when I go home um, and so I think that keeping my My sanity with spending time with the people that that I love, with my family and also playing lots of music is what keeps me sane and well and remembering that there is another life out there outside of work but then when I am at work I can really throw myself into it. This role with the college is three years um, and I think it's, it's good that it's time limited because it's a very, very intense role but a hugely rewarding one and it feels like a massive privilege to be able to Work on behalf of Scottish GPS I'm very proud to be a GP in Scotland. so it feels like a, an amazing role to be able to do for that reason and I hope I, I hope I am um, doing it to the best of my ability. Um, but yeah, but I don't think I could do this role uh, this college role without maintaining my clinical role because the two are very integral to each other. So although that feels really tough sometimes um, in terms of just the kind of intensity of the workload, I think it feels important to me to be maintaining that kind of frontline clinical experience on a week to week basis and living and breathing the problems and the challenges and the joys that everybody else is living and breathing because I can then bring that into my work with the Royal college of GPs. I think I would, I would feel quite quickly distanced if I wasn't doing that. Um, so I think it, although it's a difficult balance to strike, sometimes I feel it, it gives me um, more confidence and more credibility
1: to do the all mm-hmm. and you say you're doing four sessions so that's a morning and one session in the morning or an afternoon so some people would say that that's four sessions is still quite a lot in terms of balancing your yeah. your with a very busy other role and other roles you're doing um how many sessions do you think is too too little i
2: think that, again that's a difficult question and one that's probably quite debated quite mm-hmm. widely throughout the profession um my sessions are generally six hours long and um, i think technically speaking the gp session is five but um so four sessions for me is 24 hours and i've noticed even cutting down to four sessions that you that you you struggle a little bit more to maintain the continuity to be as quick as you are um, as you have to be with doing 10-minute consultations and um, in terms of being able to look things up and um, and sense check stuff with colleagues so I think there uh, there is a kind of balance um, between being able to keep clinically up to date and not be stressed within the day job if you like, mm. um, because you're there enough to keep on top of things plus do this other role um, there is no agreed minimum number of sessions across Scotland for GPs to do to keep up to date because it's very variable depending on on the kind of work that you're doing um, and certainly if you've been working as a, as a partner for 35 years and then you cut down to a small number of sessions then that feels you know, safer and more sustainable than if you've only ever worked one session a week because essentially we're generalists and we have a wide breadth of, of clinical topics that we need to be able to keep on top of to keep safe. So it's, it's, it's a difficult one because we want as many GPs to work as many sessions as possible even if that is only one a week, um, but in an ideal world, we would like general practice to feel that that it was possible to do a lot more than that um, and feel manageable. And that's I can I think the vision that we're working towards, that that the BMA are working towards, the Scottish government are working towards.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay, and you obviously manage um your well-being as well around that by some of the things we mentioned earlier sort of singing and running and um how important do you think those things are too
2: i think they're hugely important and they they can quite easily again get left by the side of the road the busier you get you just kind of stop doing them and then you feel the the effect of that because you start to lose your identity outside of work and for me that feels quite um disconcerting um I, I think that you know, trying to keep yourself um, healthy physically is important. It's not it's not easy. I don't find it easy going for runs at half five in the morning, but actually I I, I now find quite a joy in it because I, I get up before the, the rest of the time has got up. I live in a lovely little coastal town outside Edinburgh. I um, get up at half past five and I run down and I hear the sea in the morning and I run down to the harbour and I see the fishing boats going out and then mm. I run back along the high street and I see... Time beginning to wake up, and it makes me feel like no matter how difficult the rest of the day is, and it, it probably will be difficult, I have captured that part of the day for myself, um, and no one can take that back. So I get back to the house at six o'clock in the morning, and then I feel much better for the rest of the day. And, it, and it's, so it's something about doing something for yourself and protecting time for yourself, and it is it, obviously something to do with just keeping it a bit fitter as well because that makes you less tired overall but it, it, I think it is about a sense of control and a sense of reclaiming a part of the day for yourself and the music thing is just it's my other love you know mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed music and I'm um, and lucky to play with. So the GP well-being aspect for me um, feels really really important at the current time because I think that it's in some ways unprecedented in terms of stress in the GP workforce. People are really struggling to manage the workload pressures that are out there at the moment. Um, And I think that addressing workload has to be the main aim in reducing stress because anything else is a bit of a splash in the ocean. So, you know, a lot of our energies as a college are focused on what can we do to help, you know, our negotiators and Scottish Government address some of the workload issues. But separate to that, I think that there are also very important wellbeing issues that we need to take seriously as a profession, which are around recognising the emotional labour of the job that we do and recognising that, you know, as GPs, up to half of our consultations have got a mental health component to them. And in many circumstances, we are listening to the unfiltered, really difficult stories that our patients bring us in a 10 minute consultation that we then have to very rapidly move on to the next story um, and that we have to hold that and somehow shelve that and move on Um, and there isn't currently um, I don't think enough recognition of the impact that that can have on people's psychological well-being as practitioners and what can then happen is that we start to develop coping strategies that aren't necessarily that healthy so dark humour Alcohol, um, mental health issues within GPs are are very high. You know, so anxiety or stress or suicidal thoughts or suicide. This is a really serious problem, and I think you know a lot of it is to do with workload, as I was saying. But I think a lot of it is not having a recognition that that practitioners need to speak to each other and they need to have time to talk to each other about the emotional labour of the job that they do. And I think in an ideal world, they need to have someone help unpick the dynamics of consultations that can leave you feeling either angry or disempowered or hopeless um, or incompetent as a clinician, the ones that feel really, really challenging and difficult when we're maybe dealing with patients. And I would say more so in areas of high deprivation, where, where people have often experienced adverse childhood experiences and are unable to accept care and we're trying to give care and then the, the people that we're trying to give care to find it difficult to accept it and maybe sabotage the care that we're offering. But we don't have any training like that in medical school. There's nothing in medical school that helps you to understand this, the tricky psychodynamics of adverse childhood experiences and what has traditionally been labelled as borderline personality disorder, which is not particularly helpful. But So what that can mean is that the GPs come to the end of their tricky days and think, I'm exhausted and I don't know how much more of this I can take. When I was working at the homeless practice, I felt incredibly lucky to be part of a reflective practice group, which was only one hour a month, but it was a hugely important hour a month that at times felt quite life-saving. And it was facilitated Mm. by a psychologist who was attached to the practice, who had an interest in psychodynamic, psychotherapy and other childhood experiences. And I'd never had anything like this before in my professional career, where you had an hour to really talk about what are the psychological impacts of working with a very deprived population? And slowly over the five years that I worked there for an hour a week, we began to unpick what that could mean and what you know the, some of the coping strategies might be as a practitioner and what some of the mechanisms might be for, for being able to work with patients and challenge maybe gently some of the things that were being said in consultation so that you can keep going in to these situations and retain your compassion. Because ultimately, that's what worries me is that the more um, emotional labour you have in a job and the less you're able to process it, the more it begins to impact on how you can retain compassionate practice, because that's what happens when people burn out. They lose their compassion and they lose the joy in their job. So in terms of the well-being work that we're doing with the college, we've done a survey of members which has been incredibly useful to give insight into the things that people are finding difficult at the moment, which we'll be hopefully publishing over the next few months. Um, and we fed into the GMC practitioner um, well-being group, the advisory group that they're running at the moment to give some very specific examples of things that would help GPs um, to be able to stay well Um, because as I say it's not all about workload and some of it is about addressing the culture of appraisal or the culture of our interface and um, the way that people can feel about being GPs. Um, in terms of how that is perceived within the wider, wider medical profession. Um, but also just arguing for the need for reflective practice to be part of our normal working week, to show that we value ourselves as a profession and that that's what we do. Um, and also possibly the need for a practitioner health programme that's dedicated to providing healthcare care to, to doctors, um, because we know that doctors don't tend to access care as well as they, as they should.
1: Oh, yeah, I personally find that amazing, and it's amazing the impact that you've had um, that's, that places like the homeless practice in Edinburgh have had on you. I know that it was specifically quite complex patients you were working with during that time, and that's why um, having a clinical psychologist there was really useful. But I wonder what the role whether whether that would be useful for all GPs um, just to have a think about it, because particularly at the end of those long days when it's been really hard, just thinking about. Yeah, just making, almost flipping things on its head a little bit and not thinking, actually, poor me, but turning it around a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think, yeah. I think it's useful for everyone. It doesn't matter what mm. kind of practice population you're working yeah. with. There will always be consultations that feel really difficult and you don't really understand why they're difficult, but mm. you come out of them feeling irked or upset mm. um, or angry. And you and there's nowhere to put those emotions. There's no place to discuss no. them or to understand mm. them. Um, and actually when it's turned on its head it can become really powerful learning it's Mm -hmm. really good team building and people share their kind of vulnerabilities around it and it's also really good for patients because it means that you can come back in with a much healthier idea of what's actually going on yeah with a much more psychological kind of mindset than you maybe would have done before
1: before yeah. yeah so carrie i want to just ask you a couple more questions and um there's so much more i want to discuss with you so there's um Potentially I might have to come back and interview you. <laughs> um, a lot of the stuff you've been saying about patient voice, I'd love to explore in more detail. But anyway, um, I always finish with just asking you your one book that you would recommend to someone who's interested in reducing health inequalities and starting out on their career. What would you recommend?
2: This is really hard, <laughs> this question. I think a book that's really, really helped me and really influenced me and really um, allowed me to maybe put a voice behind some of the um, some of the values that I hold and some of the experiences that I'd had, but I didn't really have the evidence to back it up, is a book called Intelligent Kindness. Um, challenging the culture of healthcare because it's full title. But it's it's a really fantastically written book that has a really good mixture of both sort of narrative and social science and evidence in health economics. So no matter what kind of meeting you're going into, whether you've got the people who like the data or the people who like the stories, I draw on this book a lot. And there's a chapter in that book um, that talks about practitioners working on the edges of kinship. So basically working with marginalised groups and working with groups that are traditionally not perceived as um, um, popular or attractive or kind of politically exciting or sexy topics, so, you know, maybe working with um, patients who've got brain injury, learning disability, dementia, drug problems, mental health issues. Um, these are often the groups that I think can be particularly mm-hmm. challenging in terms of practitioner burnout um, because they, they don't have the kind of profile that some of the other specialties might have. So, I find that a really useful chapter in terms of being able to say, There is something quite specific about working with marginalised groups that we need to recognise in terms of the impact it can have on wellbeing. And that's been a really powerful bit. All the chapters are great, but that one was particularly Mm. helpful for me.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you. That sounds great. Um, And then, my final question. A genie has appeared to you, Carrie, and said, you can have one wish to reduce health inequalities. What would that one thing be?
2: I think it would be a kind of collective... Society desire to target resource to the areas that it's needed the most, and for as a society, for us all, just to believe that that was the right thing to do, because I think that until we kind of get to that place, it feels difficult to challenge a lot of the decisions that are made around where things are resourced and where money goes, and um, and I think you know that in terms of reducing health inequalities, we need to you know, very seriously consider the questions that we make as a society about how we address that in terms of resource, so that it's not the loudest voices that get the most funding, it's often the ones that have no voice.
1: Well, I wish I could do that for you. <laughs> But we will both carry on trying to strive to do that. that (laughs) (laughs) Me too, me too. So anyway, thank you, Carrie, for your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Carrie, this has been absolutely fantastic. I will be getting back on my train to Sheffield this evening with an inspired spring in my step. Um, There's so much stuff that we've talked about today that I've just found fascinating. I can't wait to listen back to this to hear those little bits of information that you've given so that I can try and consolidate it for myself, let alone for everyone else listening. So particularly things about um, finding your tribe and working in areas that sort of bring you joy um, and saying yes to all those opportunities, I think has been inspiring for me at the beginning of my career. Um, a lot of the things you've talked about in terms of workload and work-life balance, too, has been fascinating. Um and um, where the patient sits within all of that um, I'd love to talk to you more but <laughs> um, we'll call it a day so thank you. thank you thank you all for listening you will be able to find further episodes
0: on the Fair Health website if you haven't been on there already please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk it is a fantastic educational resource If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealth or at RMSteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding FairHealth.